Forward. I was probably a little overeager when I asked Hanif Abdurraqib to form a deaf cab for cutie cover band with me. It could be called movie script ending, I said. Ever generous, his reply skirted the need for a yes or a no. You strike me as someone who could front a band, he said. Probably a little much. After all, we had only met in person once. We were mostly internet friends, part of the interwoven network of old buddies and mutual Twitter followers and quiet rivals that comprises a loose community of black poets of our generation. We had just, a little over a month prior, connected in person for the first time at a Memorial Day barbecue, where he told me quietly that he had an idea for an essay about how Trap Queen was an important love song and I told him that that sounded awfully good. So maybe I was overzealous with the cover band thing. But I was just so excited to feel a little less alone in the world, so enthused by his Facebook posts about the music I had loved so fiercely during my teen and college years, music that seemed to speak to the very center of my heart while it also made me feel impossibly lonely in rock venues and divey bars packed to the gills with white people. This is what I told him via voice text as I careened down the interstate one night, alone, euphoric to the point of delusion, listening to songs that made me feel full and feeling like he might understand that in a way others might not. I was sad, and I desired a chance to pivot my sadness into something like dancing, something like making people sing along. This, too, is a response to grief, he tells us. Covering yourself in the spoils of your survival. Because, you see, Hanif Abdurraqib is something between an empath and an illusionist. Among the thousands who have read his work, I am confident that I am not alone when I say that Hanif lured me in with a magic trick, by apparently knowing the textures of my relationship to songs and athletes and places that I love. He knows our secrets. He has an uncanny ability to write about music and the world around it as though he was sitting there on the couch with you in your grandma's basement, listening to her old vinyl, or he was in that car with you and your high school friend who would later become your boyfriend, singing until you were hoarse, or he was on the bus with you and you sat in the back with your headphones on trying to look a lot harder and meaner than you really were. He seems to know all about that summer, that breakup, that mix she made you that you lost when someone broke into your car later that year. It is an album of return and escape and return and escape again. It feels, in tone and tension, like coming home for a summer after your first year of college, having tasted another existence and wanting more, but instead sleeping in your childhood room. Home is where the heart begins, but not where the heart stays. The heart scatters across states, and has nothing left after what home takes from it. At moments in the show, I felt like I was exiting my current body and watching myself from through my younger eyes, wondering if this is what it was always going to come to. Returning to the bomb for an old wound, a shame that I once decided to wear it. Kendrick Lamar says God got us and the US crawls out of the speaker and wraps its arms around the black people in the room. The way a good preacher might say we in a black church and the congregation hums. The way I say my people and my people know who they are even if we've never met, or even if we've never spoken, or even if all we have is the shared lineage of coming from a people who came from a people who came from a people who didn't intend to come here but built the here once they arrived. But then, like any good magician, he pivots. Sure, he found the card you chose and that's impressive, but then you realize he's turned the whole deck into the queen of hearts and that's so much more remarkable. And all of a sudden you're drawn into an irresistible account of some artist whose work you never cared about, maybe someone whose work you even hated or always thought was kinda stupid, or just ignored altogether, 
and you realize how foolish you've been. A while ago we showed up for lunch with a group of friends, and our fellow poet José Olivares invited his brother to join us. Pedro showed up proudly sporting a Carly Ray Jepsen shirt paired with a chain and crisp Nikes, and explained that Hanif had been the one to put him on. Indeed, his passion for CRJ is legion, and I confess that for a while I thought it was an ornate joke, because people like me, people like us, don't listen to Carly Rae Jepsen, until I actually put on emotion and when it was over, found myself putting it on again, and hitting repeat. We've run out of ways to weaponize sadness, and so it becomes an actual weapon. A buffet of sad and bitter songs rains down from the pop charts for years, keeping us tethered to whatever sadness we could dress ourselves in when nothing else fit. Jepsen is trying to unlock the hard door, the one with all of the other feelings behind it. This is what he does. His work asks not, as much criticism does, what is happening here, but rather, what does this work mean? What is it doing in the world? This is a book about life and death, in particular, though not exclusively, about black life, and black death. In our era, the election of the first black president this gruesome nation had ever seen, and the unavoidable broadcasts of black people murdered have twisted into a sick double helix such that they all decided to pay attention to us again. That means that we have been living and reading and writing in an era when blackness and the spectacle of our irreconcilable, uncomfortable, formative presence in this country, and all the implications of that spectacle, is in full view in a way that is by no means unprecedented but sure is awfully loud. There is lots to say and lots of people are saying it, some distinctly and some less so. Amidst it all, it can be hard for those of us who are having our second coming of age within the din of a violent country to determine where our voices fit. In that context, they can't kill us until they kill us, in its very title honoring death and life regarding each other in inward-facing mirrors, a memorial of a memorial of our brother slain, manages against all odds to be really something special. Consider this moment, when Hanif retells the tale of Jordan and Iverson in a way that is really the tale of the constraints placed on the black body, on who is allowed to move freely and who is allowed to mourn, and how, narrated, in the end, through a boy attempting an Iversonian crossover alone on a wet court. You will believe that I once wore bag-wide jeans that dragged the ground until the bottoms of them split into small white flags of surrender and you will also believe that I dreamed of having enough money to buy my way into the kind of infamy that came with surviving any kind of proximity to poverty. You will believe, then, that I remember all of this by the way the ball felt in my hands as I stood on the court alone the next day, pulling the wet ball from one hand to the next and feeling the water spin off of it. You will believe that I only imagined the defender I was breezing past, and pushing my way to the foul line. And even as I missed shot after shot after shot, I still cheered. Alone in the wet aftermath of a night where I first saw the player I imagined myself becoming. A shot, finally finding the bottom of the net, and my hand, still extended, to an audience of no one. Freedom. And its inverse, as David Stern made us see when Iverson's cornrows became a minor crime, constraint. Abdurraqib indicts the country doing the police work of this constraint, not through a direct admonition, but through the kind of quietly damning observation we Midwesterners so excel at. The daughter of a black man murdered on camera by police records an ad for a presidential candidate and the white people who support the candidate are so moved by her retelling of a life without her father. And I do imagine that it must be something, to be able to decide at what volume, tone, and tenor you will allow black people to enter your life, for praise or for scolding. 
In many of the essays in this book, the crowd, whether the crowd at a tiny punk club or the crowd gathered in protest at JFK airport, also becomes a character, an audience, an imagined chorus to the comedy or tragedy Abdurraqib is witnessing. Implicitly, he reminds us of the magic of live music and human interaction in an era when on-demand streaming means that many of us lack any physicality whatsoever in our listening lives. I think it was 2010 when I sold all my CDs to a store I'm pretty sure is closed on a street that is now unrecognizable to me. For a writer who came of age in small Midwestern punk, emo, and hardcore shows, bodies are paramount, the ambitious and the listless alike packed in a room, sweating on each other, the safety pin from someone's ripped jeans come undone and stabbing you in the back of the shoulder, your bigger or taller friend keeping you from getting your head stomped in the pit bodies and the glory and inconvenience of bodies. Music, Abdurraqib reminds us, is something that is not only received but happens, takes place in a place where people are. Our parents' generation of black folks are known to greet each other with the koan-like tautology everything is everything. How you doing brother? Man, listen. Everything is everything. Everything is everything. In they can't kill us until they kill us, everything is quite literally everything. Race is music is love is America is death is rebirth is brotherhood is growing up as a mother is music is music is music is music. Everything is everything. Abdurraqib makes you realize that the music you listen to isn't about people like us, because it turns out all of us are people like us. All of us are frightened and heartbroken and ecstatic and mourning and in love and driving fast down the interstate, and we are blessed enough to live in a time when there are plenty of artists adept to holding that mirror. Last month when I sat on the floor with my seven-year-old cousin, playing checkers, she started singing a Carly Rae Jepsen song to herself in an earnest voice I'd never heard before, I really 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 like you. I pulled the song up and we sang it together, and for the moment that was our highway. Hanif would probably laugh at this because I don't think he counts himself as any sort of optimist, but this book makes me almost believe in things I thought I'd given up on. I might even dance again, daring to move my legs across this wasted land. Evel Ewing They can't kill us. Until they kill us. I can't afford love. The weekend. I. When Marvin Gaye sang the national anthem at the 1983 NBA All-Star Game, he knew he was going to die soon. If you are in Columbus, Ohio, on July 3rd of any year, you will likely drag yourself downtown with a blanket in the middle of the day, when the sun is still at its highest and most hungry. If you're lucky, you'll get a space at Huntington Park, where our beloved AAA baseball team, the Columbus Clippers, delivered back-to-back -back titles in 2010 and 2011. When night comes, you'll fall back into someone's arms, or be the arms that someone falls back into. And you'll roll your eyes when Born in the USA plays while fireworks fly screaming into the sky, tucking all its darkness into their pockets. There are days when the places we're from turn into every other place in America. I still go to watch fireworks, or I still go to watch the brief burst of brightness glow on the faces of black children, some of them have made it downtown, miles away from the forgotten corners of the city they've been pushed to. Some of them smiling and pointing upwards, still too young to know of America's hunt for their flesh. How it wears the blood of their ancestors on its teeth. Change the rapper's golden year. This, more than anything, is about everything and everyone that didn't get swallowed by the vicious and yawning maw of 2016, and all that it consumed upon its violent rattling which echoed into the year after it and will surely echo into the year after that one.
This, more than anything, is about how there is sometimes only one single clear and clean surface on which to dance, and sometimes it only fits you and no one else. This is about hope, sure, but not in the way that it is often packaged as an antithesis to that which is burning. It was an endless year that was sometimes hot and sometimes unbearable, and I sometimes threw open my windows and let music flood into the streets and I sometimes watched people glance up with a knowing smile, the way we do when a sermon calls us home, or calls us back to something better or away from somewhere worse. I haven't been to church in years but I am of a people who know how to preach. Chance the rapper has probably been to church more recently than I have, or at least he understands the gospel better than I ever will. By which I mean the gospel is, in many ways, whatever gets people into the door to receive whatever blessings you have to offer. Everyone I knew needed blessings in 2016. The world, it seemed, was reaching yet another breaking point in a long line of breaking points. An endless election barreled forward, a xenophobic bigot leading the charge. Deadly attacks seemed to be a monthly occurrence, anchored by the Pulse nightclub massacre, the deadliest attack in our country's history. There were funerals I missed, and funerals I didn't. People I loved walked out of doors they didn't walk back through. The summer was cloaked in blood and fear, with more in the fall. If you believe, as I do, that a blessing is a brief breath to take in that doesn't taste of whatever is holding you under, say I speak to God in public and mean more than just in His house, or mean more than just next to people who also might speak to God in public, or say God and mean whatever has kept you alive when so many other things have failed too. It isn't hard to sell people on optimism, but it's hard to keep them sold on it, especially in a cynical year. Yet when it was all said and done, Chance the Rapper stood as 2016's greatest optimist. His coloring book was one of the albums that wouldn't go away, no matter what came after it. First, it was the perfect summer album. Then summer passed, and I was still kicking up dead leaves in my neighborhood and listening to cars roll by with their windows slightly cracked listening to smoke break or mixtape. Chance made the only thing in 2016 that fit unconditionally. There is something about his joy that makes it stretch longer, perhaps that it demands nothing immediate from a listener or observer, except to take it in and let it be a brief and necessary bandage over anything that hurts. Joy, or the concept of joy, is often toothless and vague because it needs to be. It is both hollow and touchable, in part because it is something that can't be explained as well as it can be visualized and experienced. For this, Chance benefits greatly. He has made joy into a brand, particularly coming to light in the middle of 2015, when he released the grinning, dancing, bright video for Sunday Candy, an infectious ode to old black people and church music. Chance the rapper is always smiling, or seems like he always could be on the verge of smiling. It is, kind of, just how his face is. He is mostly teeth, and carries an expressive nature that pushes and pulls his brow in various directions while he raps or speaks, but his mouth is often pushing the edges of a smile. A lot of white people love Chance the Rapper, which makes me reluctant to paint him as some smiling and dancing young black artist, appealing to the white masses. There is a lot to be made out of Chance's relationship to white rap fans, and how he, as an artist, manages to maintain that relationship while not straying from his reliance on the roots of black church music, and the spirit of black preaching. I think, though, that a natural reaction to black people being murdered on camera is the notion that living black joy becomes a commodity, something that everyone feels like they should be able to consume as a type of relief point. I may not come down on the same side of that as everyone who listens to Chance, 
but I think what Chance does is what the best artists of color manage to do in this setting, makes music facing his people while also leaving the door open for everyone else to try and work their way in. Yes, this black grandmother being praised isn't a universal grandmother for all who are living, but there is praise in the living hand of someone who raised the person that raised you, pressed against your face. For months of 2016, I wondered, sometimes out loud, if this could still have been the year of chance had he come out of any other city. If chance had been someone who hailed from the coasts, I imagine that the sound of coloring book, a joyous mess of voices and harmony, with the self as the most reliable instrument, would have moved us just the same. But what of everything else that came with it? What about the feel-good aspects of Chance's story, the Midwest kid made good? And it's not as though he rose from the cornfields of central Iowa. Unlike any other city in its region, Chicago sits at the center of the national conversation, taking up space in exciting, uncomfortable ways. Its name is deployed by politicians who imagine any place black people live as a war zone. Black people live and die in Chicago, they create and thrive in Chicago. This year, in particular, the city has been a driving force behind art, sound, writing, and a movement of young black creatives claiming a space of their own, Saba and No Name and Mick Jenkins and Jamila Woods and Vic Mensa, to name a few. Chance, though, was the one who tapped into exactly what this year needed. The soundtrack to grief isn't always as dark as the grief itself. Sometimes what we need is something to make the grief seem small, even when you know it's a lie. I went to Chicago in late May of 2016. I found myself crammed into a seat on a school bus driving through the city to an undisclosed location. Chance carried me here, strictly on the promise of something spectacular. It was the first time in years that an artist had made me believe in their capacity for the unbelievable in such a way that I got on a plane and flew toward something unknown. The school bus eventually pulled up to a warehouse, where I settled into a long and snaking line. Once inside, Chance's voice rang out over the loudspeakers, inviting everyone to Magnificent Coloring World, an interactive event and funhouse for all ages to be experienced while Coloring Book played through in its entirety. It was, in many ways, like watching a visual album playing out, created in real time by random participants. Teenagers colored, 20-somethings rapped to every word of every song while leaning into glowing church pews, young children broke out and dance wherever there was a clear bit of floor, first a handful, and then others, and others. There were bowls of candy, coolers of cold drinks, and the entire set from the music video for Sunday Candy pushed back against a wall. It was a brilliant creation, in both scope and execution. When the album died down, the final handclaps of blessings, reprise, echoing off of the warehouse's brick, a silence fell over the room, and then it quickly became everything but silence, as Chance himself rose from a riser. He was smiling, a Chicago Bulls jersey nearly down to his knees. He stood for a moment, waiting for the cheers to die down. And then he stayed for a moment longer, and a moment longer, until he seemed to realize that the cheers weren't going to stop. There's something about the way Chance takes up space that causes these types of intense reactions. It's a rock star-like quality, like the Beatles stepping off the Boeing 707 in New York back in 1964. Because he seems too good to be true, witnessing chance in person, even in stillness and silence, can prompt a type of thrilling madness. It's also in the energy he gives off, particularly in Chicago. By the time he arrived to the people at Magnificent Coloring World, he was nearly vibrating, radiant. Eventually he spoke, briefly, 
Hi. Thanks for coming to Magnificent Coloring World. I hope you had a good time, and please be sure to try to clean up a little for the next group coming in. He smiled as someone in the back yelled, Thank you, Chance. And then he was gone, waving as the riser took him back underneath the wonderland he'd created. The air was still buzzing as the masses walked back outside into the sun. It is one thing to be good at what you do, and it is another thing to be good and bold enough to have fun while doing it. It keeps us on that thin edge of annoyance and adulation. When Steph Curry shoots a three-pointer and turns to run back down the court before it even goes in, there is a second where I tell myself that I'd love for the ball to spin around the rim and fall out, that no one should get to be both good and confident in a time when it's hard enough to be either. But when the ball inevitably falls through the net, I cheer like I always do. I rewind the play and watch again. Chance has the nerve to have fun, which has to be hard on the rap fan who wants something more urgent out of these urgent times, or who imagines that Chance being from a city like Chicago means that he has to commit to only a single narrative. In interviews, he's still excited to talk about his own work, sometimes rapidly burning through cigarettes and bouncing up and down in his seat. In live performances, he's still able to come across as genuinely in love with the people he performs with, staring with admiration at Lil Wayne during a performance of No Problem on the Ellen DeGeneres show. At the end of the long and bloody summer, I sat with friends in New York and wondered how we survived it all. In June, a gunman massacred 49 people at a gay nightclub in Orlando. In July, three black men were shot and killed by police officers over the course of just three days in Brooklyn, Baton Rouge, and St. Paul. In August, the protests spreading through every city, in the face of something that seemed like it was going to swallow us all. I thought back to Magnificent Coloring World then, or at least I considered what it might be like to live inside of an album, and if there would be any pain there if we did. The truth is that I, like so many of you, spent 2016 trying to hold on to what joy I could. I, like so many of you, am now looking to get my joy back, after it ran away to a more deserving land than this one. And maybe this is what it's like to live in these times, the happiness is fleeting, and so we search for more while the world burns around us. There is optimism in that, too, in knowing that more happiness is possible. Coloring books' childlike aspects can feel a bit overwhelming at times for the more grown of us, but in watching what those seeds produce in young people, I am, again, energized. Watching people younger and more carefree than I am now spill toward any space chance is standing and unlocks the part of me that once did the same thing for Kanye West or Lupe Fiasco. When you watch hope closely enough, manifested in enough people, you can start to feel it too. What Chicago poet Gwendolyn Brooks was most aiming toward, I think, was freedom. Freedom for herself, of course, but also freedom for her people, or at least knowing that one can't come without the other. She was a poet for the ordinary black Chicagoan, writing of their triumphs and failures, and understanding that a whole and complete life sat at the intersection of both. And perhaps that is freedom, more than anything. To turn your eye back on the community you love and articulate it for an entire world that may not understand it as you do. That feels like freedom because you are the one who controls the language of your time and your people, especially if there are outside forces looking to control and commodify both. Though we don't see the comparison often, Chance fits directly in the lineage of Brooks, more an archivist and community griot than the high-wire gospel act that sells tickets and makes him fit comfortably on suburban playlists. We all do what we gotta do to sell what we gotta sell, and I'll never begrudge that, 
for Chance or anyone else. But there's history that he's facing, too. Whether he knows it or not. Chance's biggest strength is his remarkable ability to pull emotion out of people and extend those feelings into a wide space. But he is also a skilled writer, one who you can tell was molded through Chicago's poetry and open mic scene. He is the type of writer I love most, one who thinks out loud and allows me to imagine the process of the writing. He stacks rhymes in exciting and unique ways, his delivery is the type that seems entirely unrestrained but is, truly, deeply controlled. In How Great, he sets a hard act for Jay Electronica to follow in one of the album's finest verses, spitting, electrify the enemy like Hedwig Tilly petrified, any petty Peter Pettigrew could get the pesticide and, later in the verse, exalt, exalt, glorify, descend upon the earth with swords and fortify the borders where your shortage lie. His breath control allows for a cadence that seamlessly dances between rapping and singing. There is an urgency in his writing, the idea that he truly believes that this is more than just rap. The leap between 2013's acid rap and coloring book is massive, largely in lyrical direction rather than technical ability. It's the distance from trippy shit to watch, drugs while on the clock, acid on the face, that's a work of art to clean up the streets so my daughter can have a place to play. On coloring book, smoke break seems like a smoking anthem from a distance, but up close, it's a song about cherishing silent and stolen moments in the face of new parenthood. Insane drugs, Chance meditates on clinging to youth, even as it slips through your fingers. When he softly sings, don't forget the happy thoughts, it is an anchor, a reminder that hangs over many of us, even in the year's worst moments. Another thing that Chance showed on Coloring Book is that he's one of rap's great collaborators. He is capable of bowing to anyone he is sharing a track with, without it coming off as forced, like the aforementioned mixtape, when he finds a way to meet Lil Yachty and Young Thug where they're at, delivering a verse that sounds right at home, and then, two tracks later, sliding on the airy and mellow juke jam and lighting a path for Justin Bieber to follow. There is something very Chicago about this, too, like when I call my friends from Chicago who are artists, and we only get five minutes into conversation before they want to know what I'm working on, or how they can help. It is fitting that Chance comes from a city that never lets you walk alone. He's also young, and an activist learning to be an activist in these times, as we all are. It's thrilling, sure, to see so many artists and athletes figuring out how to navigate their role in the political landscape. But with Chance, it feels even more urgent that he get it right a deeply unfair expectation, but one that he seems up to. National attention is shined on things like his parade to the polls on November 7th, when he performed a concert and then led thousands to an early voting site in Chicago. But there is also Open Mic, a series for young Chicago writers and performers, founded by Chance and his friends. Last spring, Chance surprised high school students there with guest appearances by Kanye West and Vic Mensa. There is global activism, but there is also the work of turning and facing your people, which has to become harder with the more distance put between you and those people. I don't know what the future holds, but Chance's commitment to Chicago is truly pushing the needle forward. This isn't without its flaws, a wide, far-reaching community is always going to be failed by its heroes from time to time. But when all else fails, you have to be able to go home again and have people call your name in a way that is familiar to only them. Regardless of how wide your wings stretch, they were still born from a single place. For those of us with an eye always facing toward home, chance inspires. The truth is, if we don't write our own stories, 
there is someone else waiting to do it for us. And those people, waiting with their pens, often don't look like we do and don't have our best interests in mind. With rap in the midst of what may become its greatest generational shift, geography has taken on a new importance. Chance and his peers are looking at gentrification as a generational issue, looking at place and seeing memories unfold that have to be archived somewhere. I hear that in Vince Staples, in Kamaya, of course in Kendrick Lamar, and even in Drake's views, a sprawling love letter to Toronto. Chance, at his best, is half rapper, half tour guide. The demand is simple, no one gets to speak the name of my city without first knowing it as I have. The interior of the land is always layered. Yes, sometimes with blood, but sometimes with bodies marching, with bodies moving, with bodies flooded into the streets chanting or dancing at the roller rink. There is no singular version of any place, but particularly not Chicago. Everyone, turn your eyes to the city you are told to imagine on the news and, instead, listen to the actual voices inside of it. There is nothing on coloring book that I haven't felt on the streets of Chicago in any season. It is the album that puts a hand inside of a city's back and makes it speak, makes it sing. So many people want to talk about church when they talk about chants. I understand this, in the same way that I understand my hands clapping, almost against their will, when a choir swells into a single, unmistakable voice. I understand it in the way that I understand gospel in its simplest terms, despite not being raised in the church. But here is what I also know, we stomp our feet in my church. In my church, we yell the names of those who will never be able to hear us. We curse in my church, the way our grandmothers did, loud and defiant, anchored by a life. My church is black, yes, but you might be able to get in if you can stay on beat long enough. My church sits high on a hill, away from a world on fire below it. And all of our time in it is brief, far too brief, but we get free there. We do it at the feet of musicians like Chance the Rapper, and the people who love him. If this year was bad, next year might be even worse, or at the very least it might be harder. We are nothing without our quick and simple blessings, without those willing to drag optimism by its neck to the gates of grief and ask to be let in, an entire choir of voices singing at their back. And so, this is about the choir and about those who might be bold enough to join it before another wretched year arrives to erase another handful of us. This is, more than anything, about those still interested in singing. Say a prayer before you take off. Say a prayer when you land. A Night in Bruce Springsteen's America To watch Bruce Springsteen step onto a stage in New Jersey is to watch Moses walk to the edge of the Red Sea, so confident in his ability to perform a miracle, to carry his people to the promised land. I believe in the magic of seeing a musician perform in the place they once called home. The Jersey air felt different, lighter than usual, as I walked into the massive Prudential Center and made my way to my seat. Having seen Springsteen before, I wasn't surprised by the aesthetics of the arena. I imagine, though, that this could be overwhelming for someone who has never seen Springsteen live. The chanting and relentless fist pumping beforehand while the stage is being set up, the American flags wrapped around foreheads or hanging off of backs. From another angle, this may feel like a strange political rally. On its face, it matches the tone, passion, and volume of political theater at its base form. Whether or not the preacher himself intends this, in the Church of Bruce Springsteen, it is understood that there is a singular America, one where there is a dream to be had for all who enter, 
and everyone emerges, hours later, closer to that dream. I found my seat next to an older man who, despite our fairly close proximity to the stage, was still using binoculars to scan the rapidly growing crowd around us. Without looking away from his binoculars, he told me that he saw Bruce back in 1980, when the river was first released. He explained that he saw Bruce play on December 8, 1980. I thought on this for a moment, before it came together. Lennon, I said. The night Lennon was murdered. He finally put down his binoculars, nodded lightly, looked at the exit, toward the outside world, and said, I hope no one gets killed out there during the show this time. The day before I crossed into New Jersey to watch Bruce Springsteen play, I found myself in Ferguson, Missouri, standing over Michael Brown's memorial plaque. There was no notable reason for this trip. I'm not sure what I wanted to feel, other than closer to a sadness and rage that had become a very real part of my life. I was in St. Louis, and I think I wanted to return to a place where a city was still fighting to pull itself back together, against the backdrop of suffocating injustice that still hangs above it. The air feels different in Ferguson, too. Unlike New Jersey on the night of Bruce Springsteen's homecoming, the air in Ferguson still feels heavy, thick with grief. Yet it is still a town of people who take their joy where they can get it, living because they must. There is a part of me that has always understood the river to be about this. Staring down the life you have left and claiming it as your own, living it to the best of your ability before the clock runs out. In Jackson Cage, a man dreams of a life more fulfilling than the one he has with the woman he loves in a New Jersey town, but he settles. He gives himself over to the fact that what he has will do, until he has nothing else. This, too, is the promise that has always been sold in Bruce Springsteen's music. The ability to make the most out of your life, because it's the only life you have. The technician in me has always loved watching how deftly Bruce Springsteen commands the E Street Band, and this night in New Jersey was no different. During Sherry Darling, it takes a mere turn of his head and a slight nod to pull sax player Jake Clemens to the front of the stage for a solo. During Two Hearts, Bruce leaves the stage to walk among the crowd, and Stevie Van Zant slides directly into the hole Bruce left on stage. Not a note was missed, even as Bruce crowd surfed and danced with members of the audience. What has always fascinated me most about the river is the start of side two. The way Hungry Heart bleeds into Out in the Street, two of the most upbeat songs on the album, but the two that I have always found the saddest, both explicitly and implicitly. In one, a man, overcome by dissatisfaction with the perceived American dream, leaves his wife and children, never to return. In the other, there is a celebration of freedom from what we are to believe is a soul-crushing job. During Out in the Street, while most of the audience danced and clapped along to the lyrics about going into work at a job you don't love on Monday and dreaming of stripping out of your work clothes on Friday, I thought, as I do every time I hear the song, about living the Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. The machinery of a mundane week that wears one down until it becomes normal. The sharpness of an alarm rupturing the silence of sleep. The bagged lunch and forced joy with co-workers who are not quite friends. How that all feels different on a Friday, at the edge of a weekend, when anything is possible. During the second chorus of the song, a woman behind me tapped my shoulder, smiled, and yelled, Come on. You gotta wanna dance to this. Here is where I tell you that this was a sold-out show, and as I looked around the swelling arena when I arrived, the only other black people I saw were performing labor in some capacity. 
The fact that I noticed this, I'm sure, would potentially seem absurd to many of the other people attending the concert. As the band launched into a killer extended version of Cadillac Ranch, I looked over to the steps and saw a young black man who had been vending popcorn and candy. He was sitting on a step, covered in sweat, and rubbing his right ankle. A man, presumably attempting to get back to his seat, yelled at him to move. In Bruce Springsteen's music, not just in the river, I think about the romanticization of work and how that is reflected in America. Rather, for whom work is romantic, and for whom work is a necessary and sometimes painful burden of survival. One that comes with the shame of time spent away from loved ones, and a country that insists you aren't working hard enough. In New Jersey, Springsteen's songs are the same anthemic introspective paintings of a singular America, men do labor that is often hard, loading crates or working on a dock, and there is often a promised reward at the end of it all. A loving woman always waiting to run away with you, a dance with your name on it, a son who will grow up and take pride in the beautiful, sanctifying joy of work. I do not know what side of work the employees in the Prudential Center came down on that night, or any night. I know that I understand being black in America, and I have understood being poor in America. What I know comes with both of those things, often together, is work that is always present, the promise of more to come. Even in my decade plus of loving Bruce Springsteen's music, I have always known and accepted that the idea of hard, beautiful, romantic work is a dream sold a lot easier by someone who currently knows where their next meal will come from. I have been thinking a lot about the question of who gets to revel in their present with an eye still on their future, and who gets discussed as though nothing about them could be promising. The river, stripped down to its base, is a romantic story about a guy who has nothing, trying to make his life and loves work in a world that doesn't always give him the breaks he thinks he deserves. Hanging above Mike Brown's memorial was a small paper sign. It read, in all capital letters, they can't kill U.S. until they kill U.S. It seemed odd, at first, to see this statement over the memorial of a person who had been murdered and long buried. I think the consideration, though, was that when you come from a people born of a true oral tradition, you live lives even after you are no longer living a life. Mike Brown was flawed, but young enough to be romanticized in the way Springsteen's romantics bleed all throughout the river, where mistakes are large and beautiful, and pointing to some much more spectacular end. What I understand about the river now that I didn't before I saw it in New Jersey is that this is an album about coming to terms with the fact that you are going to eventually die, written by someone who seemed to have an understanding of the fact that he was going to live for a long time. It is an album of a specific type of optimism, one not afforded to everyone who listens to it. It is an album of men and women and families and the grand idea of surviving to enjoy it all. It is often fearless and forward-looking in its talk of both love and loss. There's a conflict between dreams and reality, of course, but the reality is still always one of survival. As the final saxophone solo in Drive All Night kissed every corner of the Prudential Center and hundreds of cell phone flashlights cut through the dark of the arena, I realized that I am now the age Bruce Springsteen was when The River was released in 1980. I once thought that I saw the same version of adulthood that The River speaks of. One with conflict and celebration, but always living. It is 2016, and not watching the videos of black people murdered doesn't mean that black people aren't still being murdered. I try not to think about death, my own, or that of anyone I love, but I don't consider the future in the way that the river seems to consider the future. I don't fear what the future holds as much as I fear not being alive long enough to see it. 
It could have been the ghosts of Ferguson that I carried with me to New Jersey, or the sheer emotional exhaustion I felt as the last notes of wreck on the highway died out, but I felt like I fell in a different type of love with the river after seeing it in this way. What it must feel like to write an album like this. To listen to an album like this with different eyes on the world. What it must feel like to imagine that no one in America will be killed while a man sings a song about the promise of living. Carly Rae Jepsen loves you back. Is that weed? Who the fuck brings weed to a Carly Rae Jepsen concert? This question is almost certainly rhetorical, yelled in my general direction during an in-between song silence by a man in a yellow polo shirt with the words event staff plastered across the chest. He tilts his nose to the thick and hot air, which does carry with it the strong and unmistakable smell of weed, twists his face the way a child does when forcing down cough medicine, and shakes his head. He turns to me and again asks, seriously. Who brings weed to a show like this? I shrug and laugh nervously, trying to gauge his interest in an actual answer. A show like this is an interesting measuring stick, as there's no real way that an outsider would be able to look at the crowd and pinpoint exactly what type of act is playing. There are teenagers here, but there are also early 30s hipsters and black people in their 20s. I notice that the event staff person is still looking at me, searching my eyes for an answer, so I consider one. As I fix my mouth to respond with pretty much everyone, a playful synth drowns the silence. The thin silhouette of Carly Rae Jepsen cuts through the blue light of the stage. All right, she says, the light illuminating half of her face. Let's get lost. Watching Carly Rae Jepsen play Emo Tyon Live is an hour-long clinic in vulnerability. It is a public display of affection, for the artist more than anyone in the audience. Jepsen is the most honest pop musician working, and for this, she may never be a star. But to dismiss her as a one-hit wonder is unfair, Emo Tyon, with its 1980s nostalgia and hazy shine, was never asking for hits. I have been in rooms where one-hit wonders have played, the ones who had a big single and spent an entire lifetime chasing another one. Semisonic, in a small bar, over a mumbling crowd, played closing time three times in the same set. Marcy Playground, slouching with disinterest to an encore, so that the bored crowd could finally hear them play Sex and Candy. This show is bigger than that. This is not Carly Rae Jepsen's room. When I see her play a sold-out show at New York's Terminal 5, no one is suffering through all the other songs in order to get to the one they heard on the radio. By the time Jepsen plays Call Me Maybe at the end of the night, it feels like it doesn't fit, like a sweet dessert after we're already full. Intimacy is generally not something that a concertgoer can opt out of at Terminal 5. A difficult venue to navigate, with limited quality views of the stage, the room quickly becomes a mass of bodies funneling to the same few spots before spending hours jostling for space. Drinks are spilled on pants, elbows are pressed into the soft spaces on other bodies, by accident at first, and then perhaps with a little more purpose. Everyone apologizes for their manipulation of space before settling into discomfort, pushed into a wall or the back of a stranger. It is, perhaps counterintuitively, the perfect venue for Jepsen to play through emo tie-in, an album obsessed with the physical space we take up when we're forced next to each other, both in romance and friendship. The feeling barrels toward you as the lights go down and the signature saxophone part from Runaway With Me blankets the eager crowd, anything is possible. Even in a city that makes you feel small, there is someone waiting to fall in love with you. Some will say that Jepsen's appeal is that she seems like she could be one of your friends, 
someone who you could sit down with and truly open up to, someone who will laugh honestly at your jokes and sit through your Netflix marathons. She is often packaged this way, Carly Rae Jepsen, your friend with boy problems and big dreams. Your friend with two dance moves at her disposal, milking them so energetically to every beat that it becomes endearing, until there is no such thing as a bad dancer or a good dancer, just a set of unchained limbs answering a higher calling. All of this seems really great on the surface, a pop musician only in arms reach away. Emo Tyan has been critically adored, despite disappointing sales totals. None of its songs has lit the billboard charts on fire. It occurs to me that maybe no one actually wants a pop star who could be their friend. It erases the boundary of spectacle. That's what keeps so many of us drinking from the pop music well, the star who stops a room when they walk in, someone we can't access, in a life that looks nothing like ours. Emo Tyan is too honest an album to pretend to be interested in spectacle. With her band behind her, Jepsen gets through three songs before speaking to the audience. When she finally speaks, it's a rushed sentence or two before she launches into another song. In a white blazer and a head of messy dark hair, she looks like a modern artist's vision of Pat Benatar, somehow both awkward and entirely at ease. Some musicians don't carry on much interaction with their audience because they have no interest in it. With Jepsen, you get the sense that she is just so excited to play these songs that nothing else matters. She is the person handing you a gift at Christmas, tearing into the wrapping paper before you can start too, with an eagerness that says, I made this gift for you, for all of you. And I want you to have it, while there's still time to enjoy it. It is hard for me to imagine anyone wanting an actual friend this close to them, asking them to feel everything. From a metaphorical standpoint, one of the worst things we do is compare love to war. We do this in times of actual war, without a thought about what it actually means. Mothers bury their children while a pop musician calls the bedroom a war zone and romance a field of battle, as if there is a graveyard for heartbreak alone. We've run out of ways to weaponize sadness, and so it becomes an actual weapon. A buffet of sad and bitter songs rains down from the pop charts for years, keeping us tethered to whatever sadness we could dress ourselves in when nothing else fit. Jepsen is trying to unlock the hard door, the one with all of the other feelings behind it. It's evident tonight, as she bounces along the stage, smiling while pulling off her two dance moves to every note of every song, as she abandons her blazer for a sleeveless tee, and then a cape, only for a song, before throwing it to the side, as her voice trembles with nervous excitement before bringing out Dev Hines to play all that with her both of them basking in the audience's voracious response. This is the difficult work, convincing a room full of people to set their sadness aside and, for a night, bring out whatever joy remains underneath. In a world where there is so much grief to be had, leading the people to water and letting them drink from your cupped hands. Inside Terminal 5, under the spell of Carly Ray Jepsen, love is simply love. It is not war. It is not something you are thrown into and forced to survive. It is something you experience, and if you're lucky enough, time slows down. It is not as fashionable as our precious American anguish, our feelings that eclipse all else. But, then again, there is a time to throw all else aside and see if maybe dancing will bring us back to life, packed so tightly in a room of strangers that everyone becomes one whole body, shaking free whatever is holding it down. Sometime around the third song of Jepson's set, I started to notice people kissing. One couple first, and then another, and then another. This continued for the remainder of the show, 
I never looked long, usually just a glance after nearby movement caught my eye. A couple directly in front of me, occupying the same small bit of wall that I was forced to occupy, began kissing each other passionately during warm blood, while Jepson held the microphone stand with both hands and whispered, I would throw in the towel for you, boy, cause you lift me up and catch me when I'm falling for you, into the mic. The couple pushed back into me, one of them stepping on my shoes. They broke their embrace long enough for one of them to mouth the word sorry, due to me. I smiled and gave an understanding nod that was not seen, as they were already falling back into each other. I considered how often there is shame attached to loving anyone publicly. The shame, of course, comes on a sliding scale, depending on who you are and who you love. How often I hear people complain about things like engagement photos, couples being tender with each other in public, or someone who can't stop talking about someone they love. How often I first think of who may be watching before I lean in to give someone I love a really good kiss in a crowded store. Here, that shame falls to dust. It is something beyond the smoke that lingers above our heads that does this, turning a person's face to the face of someone they love, and kissing the way we do in our homes, with the curtains drawn. The night prince walked on water. I remember, broadcast producer, Don, Misher, said, put me on the phone with Prince. Don says, now, I want you to know it's raining. And Prince is like, yes, it's raining. Don said, and are you okay? And Prince is like, can you make it rain harder? Bruce Rogers, production designer of the Super Bowl 41 halftime show. And of course there was rain, as if summoned by the man himself. The elements favor some of us more than others. When we speak of Prince in Miami, at halftime of Super Bowl 41, let us first speak of how nothing that fell from the sky appeared to touch him. How his hair stayed as perfect as it was upon his arrival, wrapped tight in a bandana. All of my friends leaned close to the TV on that night and wondered how someone could play that hard, that furiously, in the midst of a storm. This was Prince, on a stage slick with rain, walking on actual water. There are moments when those we believe to be immortal show us why that belief exists. I will only remember Super Bowl 41 by what happened at halftime. Nothing before, and nothing after. Prince is gone now, and nothing seems fair. He seemed magic and permanent, the one who would outlive each of us, floating on immortality as a small gift for what he'd given for so long. Prince didn't just arrive one time, but many. His career was that of endless arrivals and re-arrivals, and so it makes sense, upon the news of his death, that he would once again return. That seems unlikely as I write this now, reminiscing on another moment where he arrived, several times in one night, to deliver a show inside of a show. Two, once again, eclipse something seemingly greater than himself. Many of us accept football's violence, and the culture it breeds, because the game itself promises great rewards, a spectacular play, or the sight of men performing supreme acts of athleticism, at the very edge of impossible. Before Super Bowl 41, it never occurred to me that a halftime show could exist that would upstage the spectacle on the field. There had been attempts, but often clumsy ones, the awkward cluster of Jessica Simpson, P. Diddy, Justin Timberlake, Nelly, and Kid Rock in 2004, the Rolling Stones, in 2006, looking like they were fulfilling a long-held-off errand, like going to the DMV. Griping about the Super Bowl halftime show had become a sport itself, 
a bit of glee that could be had by everyone, even casual football watchers. Then, out of the Miami rain in 2007, Rose Prince. He could have played through a list of his hits that night, and we would have all been satisfied. He did play some, of course, a rendition of Baby, I'm a Star where he steps to the edge of the stage, pauses, and tells the crowd, somebody take my picture with all this rain. But the surprise at the bottom of the box, the unexpected bonus tacked onto a paycheck, was the way all along the watchtower bled into the Foo Fighters' best of you right after that. The true joy in this for me, both at the time and every time I've watched it since, is the mastery and confidence with which he played these songs. Even when Prince wasn't explicitly telling them, I can do this shit better than you, I imagine that most other musicians had to know it was entirely true. And there, for a moment, he reminded us. Prince, for all of his stoic mystery, never gave up on the element of surprise. The crown jewel, of course, is what ended the performance, a glowing, towering performance of Purple Rain. That moment forced me to imagine a world in which this was the Super Bowl itself. I saw all of the players, coaches, and cheerleaders bowing at the feet of Prince and going home, letting football take the rest of the night off in a show of respect. There are times when the night pushes against the clock and time slows down, when you lock eyes across the room with someone who you think you could love. When a football is thrown down a field and into an end zone where a mass of bodies await its descent. When Prince leans into a microphone and generously asks, can I play this guitar? As if there could be anything other than one million affirmative answers. A sheet blowing up from the front of the stage until Prince is only a silhouette making beautiful noise. There is no moment like this one in any other halftime show, before it or since. Prince, only a shadow, putting his hands to an instrument and coaxing out a song within a song. And of course there was still rain, beads of it covering the camera lens from every angle, drops of it covering the faces of people in the front row, and still none of it visible on Prince himself. And of course there were two doves scattering themselves above Prince's head when the sheet came down and he was whole, in front of us again, walking back to the mic and asking, y'all wanna sing tonight? Yes, Prince. This is the one we know all of the words to. Throw the microphone to the ground and walk away. We don't need you now like we did in that moment, but we will remember it always. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to cast away another hero on the face of a flood that began on a Miami night in 2007 and never stopped. Dearly beloved, when the sky opens up, anywhere, I will think of how Prince made a storm bend to his will. How the rain never touches those who it knows were sent into it for a higher purpose. Dearly beloved, I will walk into the next storm and leave my umbrella hanging on the door. Please join me. Schoolboy Q wants white people to say the word. Nigga at his concerts. His desire is not passive, either. It isn't that he doesn't mind if white people say it, he wants to witness the word spoken into existence. When the beat drops, I'll expect y'all to say it, he says in a radio interview. It's not like I'm asking them to go out in the world and say it, but if they paid for a show and put food on my family's table, I'm not going to be up there saying the word alone. It's interesting, when framed this way. It's an exchange for him, it seems. If you can afford entry to his shows, and you've offered him a way to work himself into a distance from that which he raps about, you have earned a pass, in his eyes, to fit his language over your tongue. No matter what it is. 
In the fall of 2013 in California, Schoolboy Q has instructed his DJ to stop the music before going into his last two songs. He leans over the stage, looking a bit exhausted. He takes this time to directly speak to the crowd, much of it white, encouraging them to say nigga during his last two songs. He assures them that they don't need to be uncomfortable, as he'd noticed them being earlier in the show. Ain't nobody here gonna get in your face about the shit, he promises. It's all about having a good time. And so he launches into Yay Yay, the first single from his third album, Oxymoron. The song is, more or less, a detailed accounting of Q growing up on Fig Street. When he gets to the lyrics I'm a drug dealing nigga, cause them grades ain't get me paid the silence that would normally sit at the utterance of the word was filled in by 100 eager voices. The problem is that everyone wants to talk about language entirely independent of any violence that the existence of that language has accumulated over time. If, for example, a word can be hurled through the air while a boot comes down on a face, that part of the word's lineage has to be accounted for. Any language that is a potential precursor to bloodletting has a small history that it can't be pulled apart from. All black parents I know, particularly those of some southern origin, have a story about the first time they were called a nigger, deliberately, and with some measure of anger behind the word. There is often running involved, or at least the story has a tone of the teller of it understanding that they might not have lived to do the telling if not for some stroke of luck. For all of the debate over it, these stories make the reclaiming of the slightly modified nigger a political act. This is also, I imagine, why so many white people have an obsession with who can say it, when they can say it, and all of the circumstances in today's America where it might be alright to say it. It is one thing to watch a people take a weapon out of your hands, but it is another to fashion it into something else entirely, something that doesn't resemble a weapon at all. And it is even another thing to then see the newly fashioned once weapon scattered into a lexicon that denies you immediate access. I think of this when, on the news, there is another long debate about who can say any variation of nigger and when. The argument is often one of equality, no one should be able to utter a word that all people cannot utter. People who are not black often cite the word's ugly history as the reason why no one should say it, but also in a defense of non-black people being able to say the word without repercussions, or in defense of why a black person who speaks the word shouldn't be taken seriously by any establishment they are trying to live safely within. My mother thought it to be an ugly word with an ugly history, and so I grew up imagining the word as only ugly. When singing along to rap music, snuck into headphones, I would self-censor the word, feeling my mother over my shoulder. It never felt right coming out of my mouth, because all I associated it with were stories of violence, and then debates around how it could be used to do harm, or offer someone even more space than they already had. It was impossible, then, for me to imagine it as a word of love, or a word speaking to a unique bond. In a 1995 interview, Wu-Tang Clan member Raekwon is asked about why the Wu-Tang Clan has been able to succeed as a group where other groups have failed. He responds, it's about love. Love the niggas you're rolling with. Love them. In O2 me and my nigga Troy were the only two black people on the floor of our college dorm and we used to kick it but not all like that because wasn't too many other niggas on campus and we didn't all like being seen together at once because someone would inevitably have some jokes about the NAACP of Bexley, Ohio 
or some shit and we would have to pretend to laugh because wasn't none of us trying to get kicked out of some college that we were all there to play sports for and Troy was the first one in his family to finish high school and one night he told me his daddy used to play football in Mississippi before he got kicked off the team for fighting some fans that called him a nigger and Troy said the coaches told his daddy that he was too much of a liability to the team and so now Troy was at this school playing football and living out his daddy's dreams and on the anniversary of Biggie's death we was playing Biggie's music real loud on the speakers in the door dorm community room and we let it spill out into our dorm hallway because we both grew up rapping this shit through headphones and eventually more bodies piled into the room and they were mostly white kids who we made friends with because when you're all piled on top of each other in the same building there ain't much else to do and the song niggas bleed came on. The playlist and Biggie raps NS bleed just like us at least that's what I wanted to hear when I looked around the room but everyone who rapped it in the room filled in the blanks and then again and then again and sometimes louder and I don't know who the us was supposed to be in the rhyme anymore and when the song died down there was still Eric who was from Findlay, Ohio and who pitched for the baseball team and he sung the words niggas bleed just like us one last time and I looked over at Troy and his hand was in a fist and it was trembling and I wonder if in that moment he was thinking about what his father couldn't survive. Most of my white friends never knew what to make out of gym class heroes, and white critics didn't either. They were an odd bunch who came along at an odd time in an odd genre. Decidedly a rap group, they were fronted by Travis McCoy, a black, lanky, tattooed art nerd with a punk rock lineage. To brand gym class heroes as rap rock isn't exactly accurate in the traditional sense, sludgy, chunky guitars and bass backing someone doing a rapping-slash-screaming hybrid as vocals. They were, instead, an earlier version of what so many live rap acts look like today, subtle and live instrumentation behind an MC. McCoy was, by no means, the best rapper. In the band's early days, he was often too reliant on punchlines and bad puns, and coasted off of his charm more than any actual ability. Still, they were the official rap darlings of Emo's third wave. This, I thought, was always interesting. I saw them at one of the early warp tours they were on, which they entered with all of the right credentials. Pete Wentz co-signed them, and then eventually actually signed them to his record label, Decadence. They had a catchy song, an album with decent buzz, and they looked the part. The problem was that, when they were pushed into these circles, they stood out so sorely, and in the worst ways possible. The pop-punk kids who might enjoy rap as a forbidden fruit couldn't get into gym class heroes. Travis McCoy was rapping about what emo singer sang about. The four L's, longing, love, loss, loneliness. It wasn't the rap that most of my white friends at the time were most excited about, the commercial hits with a taste of danger nestled inside. Travis McCoy, for two whole albums, never says the word nigga. I am, of course, not saying that this is why white fans and critics had a hard time embracing gym class heroes in 2005. I'm not saying that their lack of proximity to what these people might have seen as traditional rap music was their undoing, even as critics would veil their reviews in things like something feels off or they just aren't speaking to what I think they should be speaking to. But it is entirely true that an appeal that music offers us is a way to escape our understanding of the world. It is working within a food chain of sorts, particularly in rap music. A rapper boasts about a life that they may be close to living, but not entirely living, giving a listener a chance to rap along those words and briefly, even though it is not real, get closer to that image of a life separate from their own. I have done it my whole life, using lyrics that actually do not reflect my life as a signal for a life that seems briefly more exciting.
I suppose no one wants to hear a rapper, of all people, rap exclusively about something that we could get from a collective of sad boys who can sound sad singing sadness. But I imagine this is a problem with how black people sit in the imagination of people who are not black, and not entirely a content or genre issue. We often see black people, more than any other demographic, restricted to what versions of themselves can be briefly loved and then discarded. The rapper with chains and a past worth a dangerous fantasy, but not worth considering as something that makes them full and human. The problem with gym class heroes, and Travis McCoy particularly, is that they were outside of the current era of black weirdness that has been accepted in more mainstream spaces as a type of visible and understood blackness. By the time their wave came along, they had already ridden a lesser one. This, too, is a failure of imagination. What Schoolboy Q is doing at his shows is, in some ways, giving a permission to something that would likely occur even if a permission wasn't granted. He is allowing it to be done louder, and more comfortably. As the demographics of rap fans shift, and the things those fans have access to shifts, a thing that I have a problem with is the population of the rap show. Schoolboy Q is not alone, but as a rap artist gets bigger, and their ticket prices become higher, their audiences become wider. It's a question of who can afford the show, which in the case of Schoolboy Q, becomes a question of who can afford to be comfortable saying a word that comes with a violence they'll never know. I wonder, sometimes, if the trade-off is worth it. If my desire to see young black artists make it is worth my desire to watch them bowing to the comfort of others in this way. People who may, for a moment, put food on a table for their family, but would also not always fight for that family's right to not hear a word that, out of the wrong mouth, can still be a weapon. Schoolboy Q can certainly do whatever he wants and doesn't need my permission. When, in another interview, he says, it's not like these white people are racist, they're at a rap show, I understand that this is all rooted in what I have convinced myself of for years, that a closeness for, or even a love for culture, puts you so far into it that you can embody all aspects without harm. That love is the great equalizer, even if there is blood underneath a word that no longer belongs to you. For this, I feel for schoolboy Q when he says that he is not encouraging these white fans to use the word outside of the concert venue. I feel for him, and I envy his optimism. I consider, today, the importance of black men loving each other in public. Of black people, in general, loving themselves in public. I think back to the pointed response that Raekwon gave in 1995, and how it changed not only my view of the word nigga, but also my view of how men loving each other deeply could open up an entire dialogue around the goals and emotional connectivity of a people. I am not saying that I toss the word about in every setting I am in, or even that I think of it as the only affectionate word I can attach to my people. But the truth is that I am comfortable here, under the swallowing moonlight, throwing an arm around my niggas and laughing loud into an uncontainable night, regardless of what trouble our sound might bring. This is a particular type of love. The type that has survived history and the weapons formed against the body and all of its lineage. The type that has turned the weapon back in on itself and now, that which welcomes violence can also welcome two arms, spread apart in a wide and waiting hug. I am comfortable here, shouting at my niggas across a card table with a handful of cards during a spades game at its tense climax. I want to imagine that I can keep at least these moments to myself and not have them given back over to other mouths. I want to believe that they're still for us, even if I can see the lie every time the word jumps off of my own tongue. The Weekend and the Future of Loveless Sex 
projected behind the weekend on stage in Seattle, two women wearing smeared makeup and little else are rolling around on a bed, frantically kissing each other. It is a mess of hands and naked skin, with some soft groans sprinkled in. Being that this is an all-ages show, the parents, undoubtedly dragged here by their eager children without knowing what to expect, are either shuttling their children toward the exits or staring in shock with the rest of us, mouths open. The weekend, unbothered by the commotion, begins to launch into the song Kiss Land, the title track from the album he is touring on the back of tonight. As the song goes on, the pornography projected behind him becomes increasingly graphic. He sings the lyrics to the song out over the film's sounds of passion, this ain't nothing to relate to, even if you tried, you tried, you tried. It occurs to me, in the moment, that a lot of kids are going to have a story about how they went to a concert and ended up sitting through a pornographic film with their parents. It is both funny for me, here alone as an adult, and not funny at all, thinking back to my younger years. As the song reaches its climax, so does the film, cutting out right as one woman prepares to go down on the other. When the screen goes dark, the echoes of intimate moaning remain, shaking off of every wall in the theater. It seems exorbitant when it all ends. A pointless, uncomfortable exercise from an artist who believes vanity means no stone of excess can be left unturned. The Weekend, real name of El Tesfe, sings about sex. The kind of sex you have if you aren't interested in love, but perhaps interested in warmth. The kind of sex you have when you're lonely, or rich, or both. When the desire for a body outweighs the desire for a name. He's made a career off of this, songs about drug-fueled conquests laced with intervals of paranoid boasting and small cautionary tales. Two years before the Seattle concert, in 2011, the Toronto native released three mixtapes, House of Balloons in the Spring, Thursday in the Summer, and Echoes of Silence in the Winter. It was a chilling musical onslaught. The songs were dark and claustrophobic. In the world of the weekend, there was rarely a woman worth trusting, unless they were high, or naked, or both. Even here, he would skirt the line between sexual exuberance and chilling inappropriateness. The only girls that we fuck with seem to have twenty different pills in them, he sings on loft music. In High for This, the first song on House of Balloons, and the song that introduced the weekend to the world outside of Canada, he sings about convincing a woman to take a pill before intercourse. It's all consensual, he said in an interview. The tone is dark, but it's consensual. Everyone is just trying to have a good time. He appeared to be an unimpressed student of R&B, someone who had seen so many singers get close to the line and then back away from it right when the audience was begging for something that felt like risk. This was his edge. He's a marginal singer, at best, who relies on the same wave of vocal melody to get most of his lyrics out, a low start to a line that ascends briefly before cutting out. He curses more than all of his contemporaries, and is young enough to imagine a world in which he is invincible, so his interest in nihilism doesn't feel like it's directly trimming any years off of his life. But, more than anything, The Weeknd sings about sex. His trilogy of mixtapes landed him a major label record deal, and a debut album in Kiss Land that found itself hotly anticipated. It is a colder, more isolated album than his mixtape efforts. It sounds like what it is, an album made by someone who never thought that their haunted tales of debauchery would make them this famous. It's a subtle shift in tone, dialed a bit down in content, but with an attempted dial-up in concept, which leads to a more open and personal world that ends up falling flat. 
Still, when I realized he was coming to Seattle, where I was briefly spending time with old friends, I paid way too much cash for a ticket on the street because once, about a year ago, a dark-haired girl from Toronto I was hanging out with told me, if you ever get a chance to see the weekend, you have to do it. There's nothing like it. Seattle is sitting in summer's dying moments, which makes the city's usual tone of grey seem all the more suffocating. Inside of the Paramount Theatre, however, fluorescent colors splash the stage and bleed out into the crowd. Upon entry to the theatre, there are kiss-land condoms being handed out. Someone shoves a handful into my surprised and waiting palm, and while killing time before the weekend takes the stage, I flip them over in my hand, looking at the various lyrics etched on the outside of the packaging. On one, you deserve your name on a crown from the song The Town. On another, from the song Wanderlust, good girls go to heaven on one side, bad girls go everywhere on the other. As I shove them back into my pockets, the curtain on stage drops, and a bath of blue light seeps out onto the audience, so intense it forces a few people to shield their eyes as a head rises from below the stage, a mess of dreadlocks atop it. Can I get on top tonight, Seattle? Can I make you come? These were the first words spoken to the crowd by the weekend, forcing a wave of screams back at him in response. It was not so much a question as it was a direct invitation, or a statement of intent. The fascinating thing about the weekend is that, when compared to his direct peers within his genre, he stands out. He may not personally consider himself an R&B singer, aligning himself more with the rappers he spent time around in Toronto, but there is no mistaking that the music he is creating, particularly on Kiss Land, is rooted in R&B tropes, sounds, and imagery. With this in mind, it bears pointing out that The weekend is not exactly a physical sex symbol in the way that soul and R&B has manifested physical sex symbols since the 1960s. Even now, with R&B folding aggressively into the umbrella of pop, the male R&B sex symbol is what sells. Months before this, at a Trey Songs concert, I watched Songs abandon his shirt one song in, to the delight of fans. By three songs in, he was grinding against the mic stand. By the end, he was on the ground, simulating sex with the stage floor. The weekend, by comparison, layers his clothes and approaches the stage with a calm, almost laziness. Tonight he wears a jacket, a vest, and then another shirt underneath, with baggy pants. He is attractive, but not in the sharply groomed way that a traditional R&B heartthrob might be attractive. He often looks like he is trying to give off the aesthetic impression that he is only present in between breaks from being in bed, immersed in some unspeakable passion. It is startling how well one can sell sex without doing much of the work themselves. As he powers through the show, sometimes turning to conduct the band behind him, the weekend is not doing anything explicitly sexual. He's letting the atmosphere do the work, and folding into it. During the song Live For This, his face is projected on monitors around the theater, overwhelming the audience with his presence. Not his face singing, or doing anything romantic. Just his face, staring, blinking occasionally. There is a tension in this, something that pulls you in and dares you to break first. The sex is sold by that which is implied after the weekend opens the show by making his intentions known. The way the pornographic film looping behind him cut out right before the film reached its climax, because it could. Because it didn't have to show the audience what the audience was already building to in its head. The weekend, even with his faulty choirboy vocals, 
is it is best when planting an idea in the head of those who are watching him. Its sexual inception, first leave nothing to the imagination, and then leave everything to the imagination. At the end of the song Kiss Land, with the echoes of passion still hanging thick in the air, the weekend stands entirely still on stage, overly satisfied with the display he just offered the audience. When he finally moves, after the crowd goes silent, he flicks his wrist toward the mic stand. Everyone in the theater screams. No one during the show is touching, despite the themes being sensual, at the very least. I'm interested in the physical space bodies take up at times like these. The way we fold into each other when a slow jam works its way out of the speakers. But tonight, everyone is at least performing distance. It occurs to me that this could be because there is nothing about the weekend that assumes love as a necessary vehicle for physical intimacy. This isn't new, in all genres of music, but for the weekend, there is such a clear dismissal of love as a trope in his lyrics. He isn't necessarily chasing women as much as he is chasing a feeling, which creates an audience that also sets out looking for that feeling. And, look, I am saying that I have wanted to forget the day and run into whatever allowed me to do so at night. I'm saying that I want to be in love, but sometimes I just don't want to be alone, and I don't want to do the work of balancing what that means in what hour of whatever darkness I'm sitting in. And across the theater in Seattle, I lock eyes with someone for what was mere seconds but feels like an entire small lifetime, and I wonder what it must be like to trust a stranger with your undoing in the way that the weekend asks us to. What it must be like to feel briefly full without considering if any emptiness might follow. I'm unimpressed by the weekend. I am perhaps unimpressed by the weekend because I'm jealous of the way he makes that which I once believed to be complicated sound so simple. Miles away from here, in my Ohio apartment, there is still hair on a pillow from a woman who hasn't slept in my bed in two weeks, and likely never will again, after a year of doing it. Before I boarded the flight here, I pulled one of her long, black hairs off of a sweater and held it briefly to the light. When I arrived in Seattle, there was a small bottle of nail polish, from a trip we'd taken together months ago. Not enough people face the interior of separation in this way. What it is to find small pieces of a person who you know you'll never get to wholly experience again. It feels, almost always, like piecing together a road map that places you directly in the middle of nowhere. The weekend closes out the night with Wicked Games, a song about entering into a doomed one-night relationship with a woman who was, moments ago, a stranger. It is his most personal song, of the night and perhaps his young career. It's the song where he's asking for a thing greater than forgettable sex. In the final chorus, as the curtain begins to descend, he fights through the last lyrics, his already worn down voice breaking even further on So Tell Me You Love Me, Only For Tonight, Only For Tonight, Even Though You Don't Love Me, Just Tell Me You Love Me. It is the first thing he's truly asking. The way the concert has come full circle, first, him asking if he can make an audience come, and then, asking for someone to tell him that they love him. I suppose the lesson is that the one-night stand takes as many forms as the desires of the people inside of it. Once the curtain falls completely, the sound of women moaning push back through the speakers hanging in front of the few remaining fluorescent lights. I'm here because a woman I love told me I had to be, months before she left her hair on my pillow for the last time, and as I scan the crowd quickly for the woman I shared brief eye contact with, I think about how much of myself I've left behind for people to gradually find, heartbroken, over the course of several months. The weekend tells the same tale, it's never about love but then again, how can it be about anything but love, 
even if the love is just the love you have for your own ravenous desires. Stepping out into the night, swallowed by grey even inside of the black, I'm not sure if I came here tonight to forget pain, or to remember thirst. Oh, how wrong we were to think that immortality meant never dying. Gerard Way